first episode, the end of it, I couldn't remember the email address of the podcast. Right. Steady at the wheel podcast at gmail.com. Right now. I'm sure that'll change as we get a, a website up and something associated with the website. But you need to or feel the desire to reach out and contact us. Again, steady at the wheel podcast at Instagram or steady at the wheel podcast at gmail.com. My voice may seem a little out this morning. Long night. Yeah, but it was. So my wife and I recently had twins. They're about two and a half months old. Boy, girl. I tell you what. <laughs> I tell you what. I can't imagine, man. So this is the... This is what I have to tell myself. We are not the first people to have twins. And I know a lot of people that... Have, well, I don't know a lot of people. I know people that have had twins who I am... Their ability to exist never ceases to amaze me with what train wrecks their lives are and they have been able to have twins so if some of those people are able to do it i, I certainly hope i'm <laughs> able they to can do it you better be able to do it here's the thing with twins i thought twins were going to be like livestock yeah and this is what i mean by that easy example chickens i don't chickens aren't livestock I, well i don't know maybe but anyway it, we can throw them in you know so chickens you have two chickens or you have 200 chickens. The amount of work you have to do to maintain two chickens versus 200 is not significantly different. They scale. You're talking like there's a certain chore list, so to speak, of things you got to do regardless. You got to go open the chicken coop door in the morning. For two chickens or 200, it's the same door. Okay. You got to go shut them in at night for predator protection. Whether it's two chickens or 200 chickens, it's the same door you shut. Right. The amount of feed between two and 200 is not significantly different. So you, you still have to go feed two chickens versus 200. You just have to add an extra bucket to it. You do it a little more often. Yeah. So we're talking the amount of time involved with two chickens versus 200 is not significant. They scale very well. Does that kind of translate with cattle? I mean, is it kind of the same? I would argue, depending on how you manage your cattle, if you're out checking your fences if you have the space for mm -hmm. 20 cattle you have the space for two cattle so yeah it's true you have to go check the same amount of fence you still have to go check to make sure the same water fount is running for two cattle versus 20 cattle so my point being is that livestock scales you do a little bit more work for a lot more bang for your buck time wise i guess is the point i'm making yeah i know that makes sense but yeah i i follow it so going into twins, uh, yeah. Same thing. Same thing. One kid, you put a lot of work in. Two kids, a little more work. You got to get up and feed one. I mean, what's, what's feeding two? Doesn't scale. <laughs> I, would, I would argue it's, it's not only twice the amount of work. It, it's probably more than twice the amount of work. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm blown away how chronically tired I am. Dude, I don't know. You're just in the grind. You and Julia. Oh. Anyway, so that's why you have that beautiful long night last night timber to your voice this morning. Yep, because you got kind of the morning grumbles. I feel like I haven't. I feel like I haven't slept in two months. Totally being honest, you probably haven't. Living on caffeinated products. Yeah. Speaking of caffeinated products, when you're driving, yeah, you caffeinated. 
I do. I do. This is one of the this is one of the big questions you get from non non truckers when when just the regular folk, the citizens, when they discover that you drive hours and hours on end. Everyone goes, I can't even I can't even handle a road trip. I gotta swap out. How do you stay awake? And I do I do caffeinate. But here's the funny thing about caffeine, and I've, I've honestly I don't really get this. You can take uh, probably the, the greatest morning routine known by everyone across the world is people get up in the morning after they've had a full night's sleep. And the first thing they do is they go and, and you know, make their coffee because they need to wake up. And it's funny to me because I'm like, you just slept for eight hours. You're not going to be any more rested and awake than in this moment. I mean, I understand you got to wipe the sleep out of your eyes type of thing, but if you're not feeling it after eight hours of sleep, good luck later on in the day. So that's always made me laugh, but there is a secret to this and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you in on it. Okay. This is my secret. This is a trade secret. So listen close. <laughs> if you got to do an all nighter, like with livestock, like we load in Montana and we're, we got to be in Nebraska the next, you know, midday, the rule of thumb is you don't you can't take any caffeine during the daytime. You just can't do it. Just You got to drink something other than caffeine and sugar about 11 o'clock at night. Then you can start your caffeination. If you hold off all day long, you don't sip on your, you know, your energy drinks all through the morning and all through the day. You hold it all until the late night. You can rock it to 6, 7 a.m. till that little nap window arrives. Just like a champ. I get that body conditioned all day. Yeah, right. Because you get, you know, caffeine's supposed to be a stimulant, right? And if you're just stimulating yourself all day long, when it actually comes time to stay awake, when it's like, this is actually when you need to stay awake, you're like, yeah, your body's saying, no, I've been on this caffeine all day. I got nothing. In fact, I had, a, I had one of my, he was a young cattle trucker. He's a farmer in the summertime and he hauls cows to kind of supplement the, the income on the farm. But he really wanted to haul cows. Great, great little hand, Keith Williams. And he, he hit me up one day. Well, we're in the middle of the heat of the battle of the fall run, the busy season. And he goes, I'm just, I'm just dying. I don't know how you guys are doing this. I just, I don't know how you're doing it. And so I asked him, you know, I said, what's your, what's your routine? You, you get up and you go get a big, fill your mug full of coffee and sip on that all morning while you're cruising. And go, yeah. I said, so try this. Wean yourself off of caffeine, period, all during the daytime. And do not, do not let yourself have any of it until at least 10, 11 p.m. So it's going to be hard, but just hold off and then see what that does. Sure enough, within three or four days, he's rocking through the night, hauling cows like a champ. <laughs> it's like, that actually worked. Mm-hmm. So it's proven, man. I had a breakthrough on my caffeination for staying awake at night for night driving uh-huh. or for having twins and never sleeping and eating it 20, <laughs> almost 24 hours a day. <laughs> so for me, there's only so much of these, uh, these energy drinks type stuff that I can drink before my body just feels like I'm not like I, anyone that listens to Jocko, mm-hmm. he talked about sometimes drinking stuff. And you feel like you need to get out and fight the road. <laughs> That's so true. That's but so well put. You get on, you get on some of these, and there's so much other 
other stimulants and chemicals and weird stuff in it that you just don't feel good. So this last winter, I took my kid over to Big Sky to meet one of our brothers skiing. Mm-hmm. And so we had to get up. I think we left about 4 a.m., drove over there and we skied all day. And then I, I had to go pick some product up in Livingston. And we drove home, so we got back about 1. So skiing all day, I was kind of tired. And I can't just drink energy drink after energy drink. So I was in there, and I really like sparkling water, and I discovered caffeinated sparkling water. Ah. So I got two 12-packs. I'm like a camel when it comes to water. I can drink and drink and drink. Yeah, I, I don't fill up on water. And that, so I, I drank almost 24 cans of that sparkling water. It was caffeinated. But I... It gave me the, the juice from the caffeine. Wait, this was all on your trip home? On my trip home. <laughs> so, Oh, man. So, <laughs> I was struggling, though. I was tired. Yeah, yeah. But it was a good experiment. And I realized that when I, when I need to push it, but I, I, my body can't sustain the energy drink where I just can't keep drinking that icky stuff because yeah. it's making me, you know, alone with your body buzzing it, you know, you end up sitting on a toilet sometimes <laughs> forever because your whole digestive system gets zapped. But sparkling water, and the one that I like is, uh, is AHA, A-A-H-A. Oh. I don't know if it's called AHA or how you pronounce it. but I think it's AHA. Maybe like so. <laughs> they have some that are caffeinated and they have some with just a little bit and they have some with a pretty good shot of caffeine. So you get a, 24 packer of that stuff, two 12 packs. And uh, you can just chug water and chug water, caffeinated essentially, and you don't get all that weird buzz from all the sugars. And I might have to, we're, you know, we're getting close to cattle season again. And uh, I haven't tried the caffeinated sparkling water. So you might start experimenting with that. I will. I'll do it. Caffeinated, because I'm, I mean, some of those, they have as much caffeine as a, as a you know, a shot of coffee. Mm hmm. And um, you put down five or six of those and you can just, I mean, it's just take a drink of water. And Did you just also unlock the mystery of why truck stop bathrooms are such an absolute disaster? Because all the truckers are pounding like monsters and Red Bulls and then their digestion <laughs> just gets annihilated? Well, probably, but coffee's known to, I mean, constipation, coffee's known to break up constipation. So truck drivers, Probably um, almost mainline coffee for years, haven't they? And yeah, yeah. And then I just realized too that if you add in, if you add in some of the the magic that's found within the uh, deli hot cases, you know the hot dogs or the corn dogs rather, or the hot dog sausages on the on the hot rollers, you combine that with with the other drinks, it all <laughs> comes together in the truck stop bathroom. Oh man. <laughs> uh, you know another thing with energy drinks this was when this was a number of years ago and it was more when red bull was just about the only one out there that was popular yeah they were the, they were they were it i was making a long drive and i had i had pulled into a fueling up and i was looking through the, the case of drinks and an energy uh, red bull distributor happened to be in there stocking and and getting product set up in this place. So I started talking to him. I grabbed one, you know, those Red Bull, they're in the smaller cans. Yeah. And I got that and he goes, Hey, you're going to probably need three of those. 
I go, huh? He goes, when they figured out how much one of those gives a, this is what the distributor told me. They based it off like a 115 pound guy. Oh. So obviously if you're bigger than 115 pounds, which I'm almost double that, one of those isn't going to do the job which made sense because I think I'd tried it before and I, I hadn't really bought into it because I'm like, this doesn't do anything for me. It didn't me. even work. So keep that in mind if you choose those energy drinks. And now, though, you look at those monsters, they're eight times the size of a, a Red Bull. <laughs> and they're usually so, like, three for five. So maybe they figured out that they got to they gotta do a man-size man monster. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, yeah, so I don't have any idea where you would look up and find out what size of a person built those cans for but that was that was years ago that red bull distributor told me that anyway but my energy drink days i think are done now that i do the caffeinated sparkling water other than i i have started messing around with uh jocko go i like a lot of jocko's products that stuff is um you don't find it in stores up here so we had we ordered some off amazon and kind of been playing around with that so i'll have to try the aha go and maybe uh maybe mix in a little jocko wizardry yeah yeah see how that goes my history i guess introduce myself i'm luke yeah this is jackson we're brothers yeah i guess we (laughs) hopefully people assume that with our first episode when we were talking about dad yeah yeah we are brothers six kids in our family i am the oldest jackson's number four number four yep I never had the trucking bug like Jackson did. And I don't know if that's because as we were growing up, I was the extreme laborer. There was a small overlap between Jackson and I as far as the labor pool that dad had to work with. And probably because I was able to exhibit such dominance as a laborer, there wasn't a whole lot of labor for Jackson to do. So he could could take interest Mm -hmm. in the trucking. Um, Mm I'm going to be honest with you guys, my trucking experience is probably limited towards when we're loading a, a livestock trailer, if it needed to be backed up or pulled forward six or seven inches, I was usually capable of grinding it into gear and, and getting that, that little bit of clearance that was needed. And if, although on the grinding gear side, dad's old, that old Freightliner. I remember when I first, I just, just got to drive a little bit of it and you push the clutch to the floor and it would just grind and grind and grind. And I didn't realize as a lot of you guys out there know and gals that you got to let the clutch actually out a little bit sometimes to help it get into gear. So the, uh, I'm not going to fault you for the grinding because that was just the way that old truck was. So while my, my driving experience is limited, you know, I, I, We'll say there's probably not many people who have loaded as many pigs into a semi as I have, nope. nor hand unloaded as many kernels of corn, which we talked <laughs> about in the last podcast. A lot of this podcast with you know the understanding where the trucking is going to be coming from Jackson. So, and then on your end, you may be uh, admittedly much less involved in the trucking side of things, but what you have to bring in is. Some of the most, and you'll hear these over the, over the course of listening to these episodes, but Luke has 
some of the most bizarre and unique and far broad reaching life experiences with different places you've gone and different interests that you've had over the years from doing track in, in uh, Tennessee to joining a, you know, the band and moving to LA to going from being in a band to majoring in biology, right? Yeah. To becoming a dentist to, you know, your latest basically thing was, was uh, being a prison dentist to having all this livestock and this progressive um, land management that you're starting to get involved in. It's like, I, yeah, I'm just kind of one track, like I truck. And it's always fun to hear the, the, the various things that you, that you're into. Yeah. Seems like a lot going on, but yeah, but yeah, I guess my main, main thing, source of income is I am a, I'm a dentist. I have my own practice. I have ventured outside of my practice to work in prison for a, for a while, year and a half. Probably get into that at some point. Yeah, for sure. Do have a little bit of property here to play around with. So here's the thing about Luke being a dentist. You have to understand this. He's not, I think most people, it's such an achievement to, to go through that amount of schooling and the dedication. It's like a huge chunk of your life involved just to get to the point of becoming a dentist. And I think that a lot of dentists and people that receive that much education kind of, that kind of defines their, it kind of becomes their, like their thing, you know, quote unquote. And you never get that impression with Luke. Like, it's not, oh, hello, I'm Luke. I'm a dentist. It's like, hey, I'm Luke. I got this stuff. I'm working these, you know, trying to get this, this new rotational system in the, in the pasture to rebuild the soil. And, and uh, I just bought this, whatever the new livestock is, you, you know, you're bringing in or the, trying this new breeding program. And the very last, last thing that you mention, if you mention it at all to somebody is, Oh, and you know, I kind of pay the bills by doing dental work. It's like the last thing, like no one would ever know. And you don't, you don't use that as your identity at all in any way. Yet here I am. I'm a dentist. <laughs> so anyway, I guess I'm saying we need to get into your, your trucking history, where you, where you came from, got into the trucking, because that's, um, that's what you're doing and you're going to be talking about that. Yeah. One last thing before we move on to that. You know, I had the thought when you mentioned I didn't, you know, that you didn't, Luke didn't get into the trucking, just, just didn't do it. But something that I've noticed is that I think that was honestly probably more a, a byproduct of you being the oldest and something about being the oldest, you have this huge weight placed on your shoulders, especially being the oldest child on an agricultural operation. I've noticed it with my oldest, Freddie that I would love to, to bring him on the road with me and like, hey, let's go trucking. But he's getting to the age now where he's really capable and I can entrust him with things while I'm gone. Like, hey, I've got to go on the road. But while I'm gone, I need you to, you know, X, Y, and Z. And like, I need you to do that. So when I get home, that is accomplished. And so I'm like, I can't, I can't afford to take him on the road with me because he's capable enough to, you know, to help Haley at home. and. I'm sure that was a lot the case with you. Of course, I was too young to know or, or not even born, but that's 
honestly why you ended up probably being around. So that, yeah, I think that's exactly right. So being the main laborer in the family prevented me from becoming a trucker. And instead I went on for postgraduate education. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know whether to say thanks or, or yeah. have a little bit of animosity towards mom and dad or dad for not letting me become a trucker become, because I yeah. had to stay home and work. Yeah. You kind of grew up in dad's truck. We talked about those, the trucks, the two different trucks that he had. You kind of grew up on it in those trucks Yeah, more than I did. You spent a lot more time driving with dad. When did you first start actually getting in the driver's seat of those trucks more than just you know, pulling forward a couple feet or backing up a couple yeah. feet? First time I ever got turned loose and it went and that, and that was the transition. It went from, Hey, pull the, pull the truck up three feet so that we can go from loading the truck box to loading the trailer box. There was no in between. It wasn't like, Hey, let's go out on some gravel roads, son, and we'll teach you how to shift the gears. It was, we had unloaded hogs in Sioux Falls. We fueled up and dad pulls over on the on-ramp to the freeway and said, all right, I think it's time for you to go ahead and drive. That was mm, seventh grade. That was a seventh grade summertime, which was one of the very last summers that I was really free to truck with dad. Because as I got into eighth grade in high school in the summers, I started working on a neighboring farm here to make money. So seventh grade summer, he pulls over, says it's, it's time. And this was in, well, who we affectionately call Old Blue, okay? So Old Blue was the original 1980 spring ride Air assist. Air assist. The beast, you know, the old beast. And that was what I did my first freeway driving on. And <laughs> it's so funny because I get in the driver's seat and I'm like, okay, I knew how to shift. I had also got to where I could drive the truck after we loaded it. I could drive it, you know, what was it? The hundred yards around the back of the old Quonset, you know, and get it turned around. So it was ready for dad to point out on the road and go from the feedlot. So I got to where I could shift from, from low, low gear, they call it low, to first and just into second. So I could shift through basically two different gears, three gears. And we get on the freeway and I, you know, I just masterfully shift my first couple gears. And then I'm like, well, now what? And then we get to where you have to shift into high range and it just, just starts to become a wreck where, you know, I'm, what are you, in seventh grade, 13 years old? So dad leans over the doghouse and he's telling me, okay, give it gas, let off the gas. And he's, he's shifting gears and getting me up to speed. We finally get up to speed. And those of you that remember I-90 in South Dakota, Interstate 90 in the 90s was a huge wreck. It was kind of coming off of some of its, I don't know when they created that I-90, what years that was, but the original interstate system was they were in the process of reconstructing. And so, so many huge stretches of I-90 had big cracks in it. Just And they're like perfectly spaced. Like every 50 yards is just a huge crack. Remember that? Absolutely. Driving that road in that truck, it was almost a song rhythm. Yeah, it was. I don't know if it was like old road seams is why they were so perfectly spaced. I don't know. But they were there. And in that spring ride truck, it would actually bounce the air ride seat. Because that, that was the only suspension that had that truck was basically the air suspension in your seat. And as an adult, you don't think of it. But when you're 13 years old and you can't even sit back in the seat, you're 
leaned forward up on the edge of the seat, grabbing that big Freightliner had those big ivory colored steering wheels. And you're hanging onto that and you got your foot down on the gas pedal. Every time you hit a bump and the seat would raise you up, your foot would come off the gas a little bit and then it would come down and you'd... <laughs> so we're going and I remember, I remember Rooster saying this specifically, what are you doing over there? What are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just trying to, you know, I'm keeping it on the road. And there's a lot with the cab over you. In a cab over, you have the tendency to drift off the right side of the road. You know, you have to really pay attention and stay in your lane. You got, you're uncomfortably, you know, far to the left. You're almost sitting on the dotted lines. And so I'm, I'm focusing on that and I'm doing great. But I start hitting these bumps and the truck starts going. And I just remember his consternation because he didn't, I don't think he thought of that, that like, oh, a kid, a kid can't put, it, it just comes down to being able to put your heel on the floorboard to, you know, to act as kind of a foundation for your foot. And then you push your foot forward. Well, I couldn't do that. I'm, I'm just, my foot is just reaching down enough to touch the top of the pedal. So when I have no heel on the floor, I can't reach that far down and be all set up, you know, like you could. And so we just pranced across from, from, it was from Sioux Falls to Mitchell, which was like 70 miles. And that was my, uh, that was my first foray into officially driving. Just terrifying to me. But at the same time, it was one of those things I'd wanted so bad for so long to like prove that I was, you know, growing into a capable man that he let me do it. And, uh, and we survived. From that, how long before that he, uh, he started putting you in the seat and, and then slept himself? So that was, so we had a transition there that happened because uh, that was the tail end of my seventh grade summer, one of my last trips. And then between seventh and eighth grade was around that 99 to 2000 year where Spencer, the mechanic, talked dad into retiring Old Blue. So it was a wintertime project for Spencer, who was a young mechanic, just started his own shop. So he was looking for a good, solid project to kind of get him through the winter as he began to develop his mechanics career. So. Dad brings up that 91 International from Idaho and eighth grade summer now becomes the summer of Blue 2. We painted that truck blue and we called it Blue 2. And that was what the license plate said. And then we changed dad's trailer license plate to Blue's Pup. So we had Blue 2 and Blue's Pup. And eighth grade summer now comes and it's time to, actually, no, it was eighth grade springtime. And they had a lot of bugs to work out with this truck. And at the time, it's hard to realize this, but back in those times, there was no social media. There was no internet forums. So when you had weird problems with your truck, like now, like yesterday, when I was having fuel problems coming into town, as I'm going along, I'm reading forums online that are saying, hey, I had, a, I had an N14 Cummins and I had this problem. And you can read like 20 different people's experiences. You didn't have that back in, you know, 99 and 2000. You know, we didn't have access to that. So dad started having some, they put this truck together and for like six months, it was just constant problems. Like it wasn't, we built this truck, we're in this new smooth air ride semi and it's just, you know, golden. It was, well, this trip, this went wrong and this trip, this failed. And there was no sense of reliability to that truck. 
and that frustrated rooster because there was nothing wrong with old blue when we retired it other than it was it was tired but it was reliable so he went from trusty old rusty to this unproven unreliable and i think you know it frustrated dad and i think the mechanic felt the pressure of like i talked to this guy into switching trucks and i need to make this work we decided to take a load of bulls registered charlet bulls from augusta montana to nogales mexico and this was this was an annual thing that dad did he did it several times in old blue never was worried about anything well this is the only truck he has now so here we go in blue too that was a, a very memorable trip for a couple different reasons one was that on the way down between beaver utah and i always get them backwards Panguitch and canab i think it's Panguitch. There's a big mountain pass and it's like an unbelievable mountain pass. Most impressive. Yeah. Just steep, steep, steep up and then steep, steep down. And I'm talking like you got to go down in your semi in like fifth gear when you're loaded with your Jake brakes on and it's very stressful. And they've since rebuilt that road. It's this giant like five lane, big old, huge thing. And it's, it's not a scary, impressive thing anymore. But back then it was just a narrow little two lane, you know, rough and sketchy and up on top of that pass we boiled over and overheated and there's no cell phones there's no nothing we got this load of very expensive breeding bulls on we're in an unknown place there's no no cell service i don't even think dad maybe he had a pouch phone but i don't think even yet so we're there and, and thankfully an old rancher came along he was watering his cattle up on top of that mountain so he had a tank in the back of his pickup He's like, hey, boys, look like you're having trouble. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, dad, this all just compounds to all these other problems he's already had with his truck. And he's just like, and I'm I'm eighth grade. So I'm like, yeah, this is a wild adventure. I don't, the magnitude of the, the stress, which I now understand, but at the time, nah. Like the stress for dad. What's that load of bulls worth? Oh, man. I would say, you know, they were probably $2,500 back then a piece back in the 90s. And so you're, you know, $50,000, $60,000 worth of uh, breeding bulls that you've been entrusted with. And here you are, overheated, broke down in the high desert mountain. Middle of nowhere, essentially. Middle of nowhere. Yeah. With no resources. So when the old rancher came along with his trailer and his old tank of water, of course, we topped the radiator off and we made it down in and we didn't have any trouble with the truck the rest of the trip. We get to Nogales. We unload the bulls on the U.S. side, do the deal, visit some family down there in Arizona. And we're coming back home and we're empty. And I won't go into this. We'll let dad talk about this at some point. But dad had had over the years some, some eye issues. He had damaged one of his eyes in a roping accident when he used to team rope. and that kind of has plagued him throughout his, his life. I think they finally got it all squared away and it's, it's good now, but he was still in the midst of some, some issues. Two months before maybe he had had a procedure done because his retina had detached from one of his eyes. And so he had gone out to a big eye, new lasers when uh, laser surgery was just coming on. And he went to Iowa to an eye doctor and got his retina laser attached back to his eye. And uh, thought everything was fine. Well, we get up to uh, Idaho Falls 
Idaho. And he, uh, he pulls over and he says, Hey, I think, uh, I think I'm having eye problems again. I can't see anything out of uh, this one eye. And he just had this expensive surgery done. And the doctor told him there's a certain recovery position. If, if your eyes acting up, if it starts going blurry, you need to put your face down. It somehow takes pressure off the retina if you're face down. And so he goes, I, I need to go back in the sleeper and lay face down. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, guess we'll head home in the morning. Or he goes, no, I, I, I can't leave this position essentially, which was, it was his recovery position after the surgery. Do you remember he had to lay face down yeah. for like three weeks? Yeah. So he goes, you're going to have to drive home because I can't, there's no way I can do this. And we're, you know, not in our neighborhood. So eighth grade spring, this was over spring break. I had to drive his truck from Idaho Falls back to, you know, north central Montana, which is eight hours, yeah, seven something like hours, that, yeah. something like that. And so I did it and that was my first time driving the new truck and totally on my own. He's in the back. I remember driving through some rainstorms. You remember there's some big mountain passes between Helena and Butte and Great Falls. I had to, had to do them all. Just no uh, choice, man. Sounds like how dad got into trucking. Talked about the last one. Right. The driver broke his hand and had no choice. Loaded, had to go, get in and figure it out. But isn't it true, though, that so much in life, necessity creates so much opportunity and ingenuity when you just, you have, like, you have to get it done? Step forward. Got to do it. Probably, too. I mean, the way dad, dad had to keep his truck route going, essentially, is. Part of probably you having to get him home was he was probably having to leave in a day with another load of hogs in South yeah, Dakota. Right. Figure out his eye and get it squared so away. He, and he couldn't just sit there in Idaho Falls. And Can you imagine for me what it was like getting back home and going back to school on Monday and talking to the kid? What'd you do on spring break? Well, we went and you know, we went to Denver and we didn't. I'm like, I drove an 18 wheeler from Idaho Falls back home because I had to. But nobody even would think it was cool. You know, they're like, oh, huh. right on. Well, that sounds boring. But to me, I was just like, top of the world. Mm, like, I am a man. Top of the world. And dad kind of turned you loose after that to some extent, didn't he? Like, yeah. Driving to <laughs> when he's loaded with corn and soybeans. Right. Send you to go unload it by yourself. So after that, after that, he realized like, there's no point in Jackson not you know, coming along. So it evolved from that into to two more things. So there's no point you not come along other than if you get pulled over. <laughs> Probably things aren't going to go good. I mean, that, uh, that is, it's funny that literally had no bearing, none, no none. bearing whatsoever in the decision. And we can talk about this because I conferred with the family lawyer who is our youngest brother, Weston, who we'll have on here because he has some tremendous trucking stories as well. But I conferred with Weston and was like, hey, we did a lot of sketchy stuff that is not quite square in the eyes of the law. How's that go for, for sharing those stories? And he's like, oh, statute of limitations, man. You're, you're good to go share what you want. Yeah, we got to get him on. He's, um, he just moved to Dallas, attorney for a law firm down in Dallas. But he did a lot of trucking. Yeah. How old was he? He got a CDL, right? He did. the. I mean, like I did, he did the day he could. Oh, no, he did it right after he got off his, off his mission. So. He was 21 when he got his. I remember 
we're living over in the oil fields in North Dakota, 2014-ish. That was Wild West over there. Yep. Wild West. But the amount of the amount of trucks on the roads out there was almost unbelievable. I mean, we were in this little town, Watford City, which just this little little farming town forever that overnight turned into one of the central hubs of that that yeah. big oil boom. But I remember they, they didn't had no stoplights. It was just it was nothing. They had a little four-way stop in the middle of town there that was the main route coming from Williston, then headed out to like Dickinson. And this was just a little farming town. You might have, you know, one semi a day come through there. Yeah. I think at one point, one of the guys told me they were at this little intersection. They were having like 10,000 semis a day go through there. I mean, yeah. And that was just, and you, you extrapolate that to the whole community. In fact, I was, I was always amazed that there were ruts in the pavement. <laughs> it was like dished out. Like I've never, I've never seen cause so much heavy trucks going on these roads that were yeah. never thought, you know, that's all, all that infrastructure has been rebuilt and, and adjusted out there. But anyone who was driving out there when that was taken off 2012, 2014 ish in that time, they'll, they'll tell you. But anyway, the amount of wild west truck driving going on out there and so west and i remember his he somehow had got sent out for a load of cattle i leaned on him so hard when i first started trucking and he got a cdl i sent him places that i can't imagine doing myself when i was 21 and i just sent him and it was it was a load of cattle because this guy had, had these oil wells on his place so he was buying cows out of montana and you know with all this oil money and stock and buying up all these leases these these grass leases and putting cattle all over the area. So we were just shipping loads back and forth. And I got behind and, and said, hey, I need you to go to basically to Watford City. We had, we'd met him when he was all wrapped up and headed home, wet him for dinner. So stressed out <laughs> driving all, all those trucks. <laughs> oh, but, yeah. We got to get him on to, to share his, because he has such a funny perspective of all of that. From To me, it was like, well, he's, he can do it and go do it. And almost kind of treating him like Rooster would have treated us. His perspective of it being the youngest is so funny. Oh, goodness. So basically me, me bringing dad's truck back that spring from Idaho Falls jumped into two things. It made me realize, for me, it built my confidence massively to where I was of the mind, well, I can do it. So why not? Like Why, why would I not truck with you now and, and take over and drive? So dad would take advantage of that. And my eighth grade summer was my last kind of summer at home. It was the tail end of that summer. And then into my freshman year of high school, I, I full-time started working for a farmer, drove his trucks around. But that was my last summer where I really got to go out with dad and trucks. So where we grew up in Fairfield, Montana, mm-hmm. a huge irrigation project, I don't know, 80, 90,000 acres under irrigation around here. When we were younger, it was mostly malt, malt barley. Anheuser-Busch had a big receiving plant here in town. Right. And most all the farmers would grow malt barley that Anheuser-Busch would purchase. At that point, I mean, 20 years ago, almost exclusively flood irrigating. Yeah. Which is, is much more intensive work. It's, it's pretty much lost these days around the country. There's very little flood irrigating anymore that goes on. And when we moved back here to Fairfield, I was, uh, everything is pivots now. Everything is pivots, but which are pivots are big. They're big sprinklers, big old sprinklers that are automated and they just spin in a circle. If you're not familiar with a pivot, 
they're they're amazing for watering because you can control how much water goes on and when it goes on and and it's equal if you uh, ever in an airplane flying over farmland you look out your window you'll see big green circles yeah. underneath you those because these pivots run in a circle those are all yeah that's a good place where people probably don't even realize what they're seeing right but when we were young center pivot was few and far between and and you just never saw them. So everything was flood irrigated. You'd run, you'd have a main water ditch at the, you know, the top of your field, and then you'd have a bunch of uh, sub ditches running off that. You'd go down and set a tarp dam in it, in the ditch, and then flood out the side of the ditch. Yeah, just overflow over the bank side. And, and so when you got a, a lot of farmland, all the farmers in the area usually couldn't keep up with their flood irrigating themselves, so they would hire high school kids yeah. to work over the summer, which yeah. I'm trying to think back when I, and so with our dad, we would kind of have a balance of when he was home, we'd be helping him and working, but because he was gone basically Tuesday to Friday with his hog load to South Dakota, we would work for farmers in the area. I think I would, 16 hour days irrigating, pretty common. Yeah. I think, uh, kind of standard. I think I would get paid four to $500 a month, but I would get like a 1970 yeah. motorcycle. Yep. That was the thing. These, that was the whole draw. Like these farmers would give you a motorcycle to drive from field to field. So you had a motorcycle to ride all summer. Yeah, had your name on it. It was yours. It did not matter how much they paid you. They gave you a motorcycle. It didn't matter how crappy the motorcycle was either. You had a bike. So 16 hour days, almost every day of the month. If you weren't, when you were done irrigating the barley, there was, alfalfa because those were the two cash crops alfalfa and barley so you were always doing one or the other or both at the same time 500 four or five hundred dollars a month mm -hmm. you could take home and usually all these farmers have a you know just a fuel tank on their farm so you yeah. don't have to pay for gas mm -hmm. just fill it up just and pull in and that's your had a motorcycle for yeah. this over and you just you felt like the man you'd, you'd roll in in the evening and you know their classmates you know girls would be out and about and around town and you're like a working man you have a pvc piece of pipe like strapped onto the back that your shovel goes in yeah it's like it's like a scabbard because you have you can't shovel. set these dams without a shovel yeah gotta have it so you got your bike with the with the shovel oh back in the day i remember getting a ride with you just a few times you, you know you you were home very little because you're gone all that time but getting to just go for a quick ride jump on you'd sit in the we're sitting in front of you uh, you know, basically on the fuel tank and you'd take us for a spin and it was like, he gets to do this all day, every day. And, and then it would like make me. So I was like, that's all I want to do. I want a truck and I want to drive a dirt bike around all summer. That's what Jackson's talking about that you get into that after that eighth grade summer, you know, that's about when you start picking up a, a pretty steady job for the yeah. local farmers. Yep. So rewind now back to eighth grade summer being my last summer under rooster's wing. We would, he would load Tuesday and he would drive through the night and usually he would get to Rapid City, South Dakota by early, early, like early daylight hours on Wednesday. And he started pulling over there and it's about 320 miles from Rapid City-ish across to Sioux Falls. So that's a good run. Dad, he'd been loading hogs all day Tuesday. You're hot, you're tired. He'd drive all night and just get the freeway by Wednesday morning and he would put me in the driver's seat 
and he would go back in the bunk and nap. And he always would be, ah, you know, I got a little sleep. But there was times where you'd call his name. You're like, hey, dad, 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 out, out. So you know that he slept. And that always gave me a, like a feeling like I was doing something like, and I remember that feeling like I am like a vital part of this operation because if I can't drive, then he has to stop the truck and sleep, which means the sun is up and those pigs are going to start getting hot because the air is not flowing on them and that's going to stress them out. And I remember very well, like just like this welling up of like, I have to do this. So I would take over and drive from Rapid City all the way across South Dakota and would pull into the hog hog yard or, or pull over right before we got to Sioux Falls. In those years, it started to get to where it wasn't just Sioux Falls stockyards. It was sometimes we'd go down south to a little hog buying station. Sometimes we'd go to Alexandria, South Dakota, various places. I'd drive across there and he would always tell me, this is when you're talking about the <laughs> getting in trouble and legalities. He'd say, if you just get on the CB every 45 minutes, and ask oncoming trucks if there's anything going on behind them, which now in, you know, in trucker terms, that means, is there any jump scales where the, the law enforcement has set up these basically surprise checkpoints to check your papers and, and maybe check your weights? And so I would get on the phone, and, or not on the phone, on the CB, and would holler at these guys. And I'd try to, <clears throat> yeah, westbound, you got your ears on. But I'm in eighth grade, so it's probably more like, hey, westbound, you got your ears on over there? They probably thought I was a chick <laughs> driving a truck, you know? <laughs> and so they'd say, yeah, yeah, nothing going on. So I'd tell them, yeah, there's nothing going. You're clear back to Rapid City, you know, and go on my way. And dad would always say, if you get in trouble, if, if you chance upon something that we didn't know was there, immediately start, just start pulling over. Slur, slow down, not pull over, but slow down, slow down. Slow. Even if you're going 35 on the freeway and you wake me up and we will switch and I'll get in the driver's seat and at least I'll be driving and we'll figure out the logbook issues and stuff later. But at least you won't be driving when you roll into one of these checkpoints. So I was always ready like, okay, okay, okay. You know, I was so nervous. But never in all, in, in all the time that I did that, never... Never once ran into a uh, into a checkpoint. <laughs> oh man, that evolved into once I got into high school, Dad started doing a thing on Monday nights, and this was I think this kind of came out of you know as kids were getting older, more kids in you know teens and high school ages, which of course is more of a um, a draw on the family finances. And so on top of doing the pig load, on top of the backhaul of corn, Dad started on Monday nights. He would make phone calls to local cattlemen, ranchers, and he would say, if you have any cattle that need to go to market, you can bring them to my feedlot here in Fairfield. And at that time, dad's younger brother, Lyle, had bought the stockyards in Lewistown. And so kind of to give his brothers, dad, you know, to give Rooster's younger brother some business and to create some, some more money from trucking, he would put together a load every Monday night. And it was every Monday night he would haul cattle from Fairfield to Lewistown, which is about a hundred and you know fifty, sixty miles. And he would get paid just commercially to haul those cattle over there, you know. And it would be, you know, it was probably six or seven hundred dollars. So he would do that, and he would leave Fairfield at you know, 
seven and six in the evening, seven in the evening, drive to Lewistown, get there by 10 o'clock, unload cattle, leave Lewistown by 11 o'clock p.m., drive back to Fairfield, get home at two in the morning, and then you get up that morning, do the hog thing, load the hogs, and then that Tuesday night, I knew he had to go drive all night. And so as I started to feel this, like I'm kind of a man around here, and, I, and that sounds silly, but it was real, I need to help. So I'd get out of football practice. This was always in the fall because that's when all the cattle were moving. So I'd get out of football practice at, you know, the long practices went till six. The short practices were 5.30. But Monday I would go straight from football practice, run home real quick, change my clothes and go over to the feedlot and I would jump in the truck with dad. He would drive loaded to Lewistown. We'd unload. And then I'd take over at, you know, 11 p.m., drive home so he could sleep. And he would, he would sleep back to back home. So at two in the morning, we'd get home, park the truck. I'd go to bed. I'd get up and go to school the next morning on short sleep. And he'd get up and load hogs to go. So I really felt that I was actually contributing to this, this whole process. And, and like, you know, I'm helping provide for the family. It was cool. At Monday Cattle Hall, that was, that was after my time. Yeah. Yeah. Long and, gone. Yeah. That was kind of my intro into, you know, trucking. And then from there, I went on and started working for, for uh, Bill Pearson, farmer. And uh, it wasn't long till he realized my ability to operate equipment, and uh, started not only trucking a little for him, you know, hauling hay and grain, but started operating his farm machineries, you know, his swather and his combines, and <laughs> just. Do you remember Robbie Newman from down in Sims? Is that name? he was i think he was a year older than you were i just slightly remembered him from basketball watching you guys play against him in basketball but at the time i started he was still he had graduated he was a college age hired man for for bill and i remember robbie was teaching me how to you know teaching me the fields the flood irrigation this goes here and you need to move this field every hour and this field every three hours and getting the flow teaching me how to drive the bike a little better and Bill had called me that morning and he said, uh, or when I checked in to work that morning, he said, uh, go do morning sets with Robbie. And then I want you to meet me at the, I think it was called the Stott place, which was one of his hay, one of his hay fields. And, uh, we're going to teach you how to swath hay and uh, run the swather. So I remember telling Rob and Robbie didn't know about this. So we did morning sets and I tell Robbie, I'm supposed to go meet Bill now to start swathing for him. And <laughs> Robbie looked at me and he was not happy because irrigating was, you know, it was, it was kind of the grunt. It was, it was the bottom level. Of, definitely the yeah. bottom level. And he goes, I've been working here for three years and I don't get a swath hay. And I was like, you know, and I'm a little <laughs> freshman, little high school freshman. And I'm like, oh, sorry. You know, and now I realize for whatever reason, he had not exhibited any uh, mechanical operational tendencies in the years he'd worked for Bill. Otherwise, Bill would have scooped him up, you know, to, to, to do some of that. But right off the bat, and Bill and dad were great friends. They, they have some good trucking stories together, too. We'll share sometime. But that was, uh, I'll never forget Robbie looking at me and shaking my head and shaking his head and just being like, you little stinking dog. You know, you move in here. No, <laughs> <sighs> oh. you think uh, this kind of goes back to what we talked about somewhat at purpose of our, maybe one of our goals of this podcast is, is get to maybe a little bit of guidance mentorship within trucking. You had strong mentorship 
yeah. being directed from our dad. Yep. I think, do you think, and, and Bill Pearson, who you're referencing, mm-hmm. he kind of got rolling with dad, didn't he? Yeah. Dad mentored him. Same way Bill, I can't remember how many, I think he's 10 or 12 years younger than dad. And he was a young farmer and needed a way to, this was back in the 80s when the interest rates went nuts and people were losing their farms left and right because they couldn't, they just couldn't keep up with the interest rates. And so a lot of people were looking for ways to subsidize through their own labors. You know, you hear subsidies now, you think of government programs. But at that time, he was trying to subsidize with his own work ethic. And so dad said, hey, yeah, you get a, you know, get your farm truck and you can haul cows in the fall and you can help me haul hogs and we can make some money for you. So dad took Bill under his wing. I always felt maybe, I mean, it was a huge advantage for Bill to have me working for him, but I felt like it was a little bit almost like he was trying to give back to dad all those years that I worked for Bill. Like, hey, you did so much for me. I'm going to, you know, provide a good job for your son and, you know, while you're on the road and, you know, pay him and and let him continue to to grow as an operator and, and whatnot. But yeah, he was, yeah, I've had great, great mentorship. Super lucky. I think historically, getting into trucking was through mentorship 100 percent, yeah 100 percent. it couldn't be more opposite than it is today back in the day it was you trucked from it was always kind of an ag perspective i don't want to go deep into this because it'll be a whole it needs to be a whole episode discussion on the evolution of trucking and why it's so different now than it was back then from a truck driver's standpoint but yeah, back then it was, it was huge mentorship and it was young guys being taught by good old boys. Now it's all through truck driver school. I mean, that's just the way it is. It's not the fault of anybody that's trying to get into trucking. It's just, that's how it is now. Like most people don't know a good old boy that trucks that you can call up and say, Hey, I want to, I want to run with you for a few weeks. Will you throw me in and teach me how to drive? Cause that's how they used to do it. And now it's no, I'm going to go enroll in this truck school because that's just the only, that's all they got. That totally uh, circumvent the right word. It circumvents the mentorship cycle. I mean, yeah, they, they might get a trainer in whatever company that they hire onto, but it's not, a, it's not an old timer from the old ways. Like the unwritten rules. Yeah, totally. I mean, at dental school, you learn how to do dentistry, but so much of the thrust of dental school is to prepare you to take your license. Okay. Which licensing exams, an example, we had to put silver fillings in teeth in our licensing exams. In America, silver fillings are still done. There's a lot of third world countries who have outlawed silver fillings. Oh. Yet our dental schools are teaching us to do silver fillings simply passing our licensing exams and, and no one wants silver fillings. I haven't done one since I, I have not done a silver filling since I took my license. really so i could see how within trucking schools you can't truck without a cdl you can't truck without getting licensed so it makes sense that the thrust of trucking schools is to prepare students to get what is most important to truck and that's your your license to truck yeah you know they serve that purpose and you can go into all the pros and cons of what you do or don't learn but i mean ultimately that's what that education is for to you how to pass the test and then we probably could go through and look at all the, the questions on a cdl test and see how much applicability it has to real world trucking right probably 
Very little. Very little. But you don't learn that real world trucking lessons a lot of times without a mentor. Yeah. Again, coming back to that idea of can we figure out how to how to get especially, you know, you hear hear all the news articles of trucking shortages, whether you buy into that or not. One of the answers that you've seen in the by the administration is to let eighteen year olds start trucking. Right. So when there is so much real world experience needed to actually know how to run on the road and these 18 year olds go to school and learn how to pass their written CDL test and then pull a truck forward and backward with someone in the seat. It doesn't bode well. No. And again, here's another episode. (laughs) I don't feel like that there's anybody out there in the country that was ever more prepared or a better truck driver than I was at age 18 because I did so much of it. And I can honestly tell you at age 18, there's no way that I would be ready to go out over the road and deal with cities and hectic traffic and weather the, conditions. Weather conditions, exactly. And I was as good, again, I'm not trying to be prideful sounding, but I was as good as any 18 year old you would have found in the entire United States. There's no way. There's no way. So it's a typical governmental thing where instead of fixing the root problem and the supplies, this, this can go into so many things, instead of actually treating the actual problem or the disease, so to speak, they just treat a symptom. They just put a Band-Aid over one, well, if we lower the age, then yeah, that'll, that'll free things up. That doesn't fix anything else, though. And this is by no means saying 8 year olds shouldn't want to have a desire to be truckers. Right. We want them to. Mm-hmm. We want them to, but we need to figure out a way to, to get mentorship yeah. and get get people who can teach them and these poor young guys and you see i see it all over social media you see it in the truck stops they just get hammered on so hard like look at this look at this idiot look what he did or look watch this video of this guy and i feel bad because i'm like nobody there's nobody to teach these guys like they went to trucking school they got some trainer that trained them and now they're on their own and they're all alone and Who's going to teach them the unwritten rules of the road? Nobody. They, they film them and make fun of them. And, and I'm not, I mean, some of, some of the stuff that happens out there is, you're like, dude, come on. Like, I know you're new, but still. But by and large, there's just nobody. People would rather post a video of a guy backing into another semi, literally crashing into a semi trying to back into a hole. They would rather film that and post it than running across the parking lot and saying, ho, 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 hold up, hold up. Let me guide you. I'll watch you. I saw a guy in Utah. I was down there last week. And this guy jumped out of his truck, ran across, and guided another guy in. And that sounds like not a big deal. But you just don't see that anywhere. That's mentorship. That's saying, hey, I'll help you. That's mentorship. You know, when you say that, I can remember multiple times driving with dad when I was a kid where he said, go out and guide that guy. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Go help him. He, He'd say, jump out there and go guide that guy with trucks backing into places, which small thing, but extremely valuable for the driver. Huge. I mean, you, yeah. you have someone in the back there that can see where you're at and can, yeah. can go anyway, kind of tangent there. Um, it's all part of this. Maybe we can create a mentorship community where old timers can, can come to, to reminisce and enjoy and new timers can come to go. Oh, that's. That's cool. I'm glad I heard that. Glad I learned that. Yeah. So you got, you finished out high school, you know, farming, driving with dad, you know, just continuing to progress. You went on and 
did some things and you get to about age 21 trying to figure out what to do with yourself and you decide time to buy a truck. <laughs> yeah. It was a weird set of circumstances that led to me owning a truck. And I won't go through all the, the various details of the ups and downs and ins and outs, but I had just finished serving a mission for the church and got home and I had all the plans in the world at this time. I can't remember what you were doing at this time educationally, but I had all the plans in the world to become an orthodontist. Oh, <laughs> funny to imagine that now, isn't it? I was either going to become an orthodontist or a diesel mechanic. Those are my two things. I hadn't actually thought of full-time trucking. I love trucks, love being around them, but I hadn't thought of it. Mom and dad really, you know, and mom, mom went through so much being a trucker's wife. Uh, that's one of the most under, under understood, misunderstood positions to be in because you live a huge life of loneliness, similar to the trucker. Uh, the wife at home is living a mirrored life of loneliness and, and it's really hard, but um, they had really discouraged me from, from going down that path because it's hard. It's hard on a marriage. It's hard on, it's hard. So at that point, uh, mom and dad were ranching now full time. Dad was more or less off the road. He was still trucking a little bit to subsidize the ranch and get it, get it off the ground. But most of the trucking we did was ranch related. So we'd haul our cows. We'd have a dozen loads of cows to haul up to the mountains up an insane road that took every bit of skill you could muster back and forth, back and forth. So that was the bulk of the trucking. But, uh, so I was ranching with mom and dad. And then at the time, uncle Lyle that owned the stockyards said, I, I really need help in here. And I would love to, for you to become an auction here and come and sell cattle every week. So, so I did that. I went to auction school. Learned how to auctioneer. How you better get 30 pounds, better better get 40, better better get 40 pounds, better better get 50 down. Get it in, bid it in, mile, 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 50 down. Get it in, bid it in, sold that cow right there, boys. So I learned the auction way and I, I would, it's like, that's my life. I'm going to ranch for dad. I'm going to truck for him as needed. And I'm going to auctioneer once a week. And that's my flow. But of course, life never allows things to just settle in and flow like that. And times changed, circumstances changed. and. I found myself in a place where the ranch could no longer support basically two households, which was, you know, me and my young family and then mom and dad. So I looked to the trucks and I thought, you know what? Dad's been doing this Monday gig where we go to Fairfield and bring cows to Lewistown. If I take that over, because it's kind of a pain for dad anyway, that's about $700 I can get on Mondays. And then if I sell cattle on Tuesdays, that's couple hundred dollars. And then I had found a job auctioneering or uh, working as a ring man at the auto auction down in Billings, which was a couple hours south of us. So I'm like, so Wednesdays I can do the car sale. That's another couple hundred dollars. And then the, the icing on the cake that really made me realize I, I need to get my own truck was there were cattle buyers in Lewistown that needed small portions and mixed bunches of cattle ferried down to Billings from Lewistown where we lived. And so Tuesday night, I'd work the auction all day and then I'd load cattle that night and drive them a couple hours down the road to Billings, unload them, sleep in my truck, get up and shower at the truck stop. And then I would go work the auto auction and then come home. And then usually it would have another auction of something 
on the weekends for different auction. I kind of just was hired out as a hired gun, so to speak. But I realized that having that truck would allow me to start to, you know, open some doors and the money that you could make if, if you truck properly was pretty legitimate. And so I started doing that. started just doing these, I do these Monday loads. I do these Tuesday night loads and just working hard. But it was Monday through. So this time were you, were you using dad's truck? Yeah. Dad was letting me just borrow. We had a second ranch truck that we'd bought because dad was using blue two to run cows to the mountains. And as any entrepreneurial businessy person who wants to be efficient can attest to, we realized if we got a second truck, we could, instead of having to make 12 trips back and forth with one truck, which was very hard to do and time sensitive, we got two, we could cut it all in half. So we went down to Idaho, down to uh, Roscoe Wagner in Twin Falls, Idaho and bought a second old. It was a 1980, just like blue one, but this was a different colored truck. Maybe, in fact, it's still sitting in the cab of it, sitting over at the feedlot. Still, we'll have to go post that up. That's for, the one for Instagram. Yeah, the one. So we we bought that, and um, Dad was letting me use that. It had a two-stroke Detroit, which will mean nothing to you, but two-stroke Detroits were in the trucking world, and the old timers are laughing right now. They're probably not laughing; they're probably swearing right now. Anyone that has had an experience with a two-stroke Detroit will say swear words. Because they were the most, and I'm sorry if you like them, they sound cool and that's all they do, you guys. They have a cool sound. Like they're like the quintessential sound of a diesel. All right. I'll give you that. They're a cool soundtrack. But beyond that, the most worthless engine ever, ever, ever created. But I didn't know this at the time. This cool sounding (laughs) truck. Little did I know that, in fact, what the old timers would say was the best way to drive a two-stroke Detroit was to go and slam your hand in the door really hard first to get fighting mad because that's how you'd feel the rest of the time driving those old trucks because they were so gutless and you had to just pedal to the floor, just scream. They call them screaming Detroits because you just, you just pedal the floor, 2,300 RPMs. And the second you got below about 1,900 RPMs, all the power's gone. Just so bad, so worthless. They were great under about 30 miles an hour. You got over 30 miles an hour and it was like, what am I doing? But I didn't know any of that at the time. So that truck was, uh, was good and I was using it for my Monday rolls and then my, my Tuesday night deals down to Billings and making some good money and then disaster struck. And one night I was driving this two-stroke Detroit in the 1980 spring ride cab over, just doing it old school like every young trucker should. And I'm driving along and all of a sudden I just feel this very strange vibration. Look up in my passenger mirror and I remember just seeing this huge, horrible trail of black, weird, really dark, nasty smoke coming out of my stack. And I look down and my gauges all went flatline. And I turn the key off as I'm rolling down the highway. I turn it on and I push the starter button and it just goes, kong, kong, kong. and motor's locked up tight. So I pull over, I get out, and this is on this little two-lane road. There's no room. Loaded? Loaded with cattle, which is so stressful when you break down loaded. It's just like, oh. And at that time, I don't have any money. Like, I don't know. I get out, and all I see is just rivers of antifreeze and rivers of oil just running down this hill because I parked on an uphill grade and just rivers of stuff running down the road. And I'm like, I'm not much of a mechanic at that point, but I do know that 
that is a bad sign when both of those are coming out at the same time out of your engine. It's not, it's not good, Luke. I'm sitting there almost in tears of frustration, not knowing what to do in this again. Dude, old ranchers to the rescue. Like, where would we be without old ranchers? Seriously. Old guy pulls up in a 24-valve Cummins and in his dually pickup, pulling a flatbed. He's like, looks like you got trouble, son. I'm like, this is a very accurate observation you just made. And you're trying to play it cool, but it's bad. And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, and I'm blocking traffic. This is just, just outside of Great Falls, between Great Falls and Belt, before oh. they'd made it a big four lane. And uh, I said, yeah, I'm blocking traffic and I don't know what to do. And I don't even, he goes, well, there's a pullout up here on top of the hill. He goes, I'm gonna get my chain out and I'll hook onto your truck and I'll pull you up the hill. And I'm like, sir, I appreciate your well-intentioned act of kindness, but there is no way in a thousand years that your pickup with a gooseneck trailer on it is going to pull my, you know, semi loaded at about 82,000 pounds up this hill to the pullout. But thank you. I might as well call a tow truck. He's like, nah, just, just try it. And it's always scary with the truck. Cause <laughs> right. <laughs> you imagine this. It's scary with the truck because you have an air supply. And once your engine's dead, your air supply just starts slowly leaking down over time. And you have, and once the air has gone, your truck can't move, the brakes all set and you're stuck. So I'm like, I only really have one chance for this because once I push my brakes in, it's going to use most of my air and that's, and then we just have a few minutes to get up the hill before I lose all my air and my brakes all set. So he hooks his chain on and I push my brakes in. He, that rev up that them old Cummins motors would make and he blows some smoke out his tailpipe. And I'll be darned if he didn't start creeping me up that hill. And it was the, just the biggest sense of relief. So I got, he pulled me up. Still don't know how. Just a miracle that he even had traction to do that. Pulls me up the hill into the pullout. And anyway, the story, the story ended that I called a, another local trucker that I knew. He brought his semi over and had to, to back sideways into my truck. And we had to call the highway patrol out to close the highway because we blocked it off you know, getting the cattle transferred and went on the way, got it done. But this is where I, this was the beginning. The reason I'm telling you this is because this is how I got vested into trucking. This was dad's truck, right? And I, I blew the motor up on dad's truck. I was operating it. So of course I felt responsible <laughs> for this. So I get, you know, we get a tow truck to come and haul it out to the mechanic and I don't even know what to do. I've got no money. I've got a few thousand dollars to my name. Still trying to save and go and thinking, well, we'll just put another motor in it. Maybe we can find another. I wasn't going to put another Detroit in. I was done with Detroits. Done. They should just take all the two-stroke Detroits in the country and just melt them tomorrow so that no one even has to deal with them ever again. But call the mechanic and he goes, you know what? We can't put a Cummins motor in there because it just isn't going to fit and work. He goes, uh, it's not worth putting a Detroit in but here's what I have for you. Okay, lay it on me. He goes, I had a guy call me last month. He has two, they were 1988 Spring Ride Freightliner cabovers with 350 horse Cummins motors in them. Great little motor. They're both supposed to run, but they've been sitting for 15 years. They're one owners. He bought them new, had a milk contract hauling milk around the state for the school. And... He lost the contract. He parked him in this shelter belt 
and left them. I've been there for 15 years. I have no, I haven't even looked at them. But he goes, if we could get one of those running, we could cut the frame off and basically Frankenstein it, take the cab and the Cummins motor of this truck and bolt it to the frame of your existing truck. So you'd have a cattle box and the pup and you could still run the truck. And now you have a Cummins motor. And I said, okay, what's that going to kind of cost? He goes, he wants $500 per truck as is just as they are. And, uh, the one truck, this was funny because one of those two trucks in the shelter belt had no rear ends. They had robbed the rear ends out of it for another truck that they had. And I said, well, that's perfect. I don't need rear ends. I already have rear ends from my blown up truck. We went down there threw batteries in threw fuel in, and this is the miracle of old diesels. New diesels would never do this. After 15 years, both of them trucks fired up. So I bought both of them for a thousand dollars. The mechanic wanted the wheels and tires because they were aluminum. He said, give me the wheels and tires. And that's all I want out of this deal. And uh, you can have them both for 500 bucks. So I bought these two old semis. And the one we chopped and Frankensteined it to my cattle truck. I think it ended up costing me about $6,000 in all for labor and everything. And so I felt like I had done a solid for dad because I blew his truck up and I have it fixed now. And now we have a better truck. And now I have a little ownership sort of in it. And then the other truck I got running and just kind of parked off to the side to use later in my, in my career as it, as it expanded. But, but uh, that was that. And uh, I, I ran that truck for a while and then pretty soon realized that the side loader setup wasn't going to work for commercial cow hauling anymore. So I took the other $500 truck and we got it running. And I bought a, I bought a cattle trailer, saved all the money I could that year. And uh, came up with $18,000 cash and bought a cow trailer and put on the back of that truck. And that's what I ran. So I'd get that old spring ride cab over, load cattle Tuesday night, load them Monday night, load them Tuesday night, do the auto auction. And then I had that truck at home and, and that was basically the beginning of the rest. You're in the game. <laughs> I was in the game. In the game. So the, the Detroit disaster. We still have that thing sitting. Yeah. Sitting about a mile from here still got a huge hole in the side of the block we'll have to put some pictures of that up so everyone can see i didn't realize that was dad's truck because i've been cleaning that feedlot up yeah i haven't gotten rid of it because i thought it was yours but now that i know it's dad's it's out of here (laughs) (laughs) no oh oh, man no i think there's some treasures i think we ought to i think we ought to pull the steering wheel off of that yeah if we ever get a dedicated podcast studio that probably hang on well probably the that up maybe even the uh front the uh, is it the intake where it has the front it says freight liner mm-hmm. that thing's in perfect shape still too yeah. probably yeah. grab that off of there yeah mattress yeah. and the sleeper is probably still good yeah i'm sure <laughs> mattress out of there <laughs> you know and it's a shame i should just i should somebody out there could really use that cab it's pristine that truck it's just a pristine cab front panels it's beautiful i should should probably kick that out for someone to utilize in one of their restoration projects your second two five hundred dollar trucks do you still got them around we so we still have the Frankensteiner. We got rid of that box as well, you know, last month. But we have a flatbed on it, and it's it hauls hay out of the field. So we still have old Frankenstein, and it, it still runs like a top. The other truck, I ended up trading it off. At that point, I started, you know, upgrading trucks slowly. I think I don't remember which truck specifically I had bought, but I had um, I think I had an old International that I was running, 
I traded that second five hundred dollar truck off to my mechanic, a different mechanic, for I think I think thirty five hundred dollars, and he traded me for labor. And at that time, you know, times are tight, still growing, trying to develop and and do it all cash only. So I got a thirty five hundred dollar shop credit, where now I could go to the shop and get any work done I needed up to thirty five hundred bucks before I'd have to start paying out of my pocket again. He just needed a little yard truck. And that sounds like a travesty. Like, dude, how could you get rid of the old? That truck had been jackknifed, hauling milk before I got it. So the corner of the cab was crunched. And a 350 horsepower Cummins with a nine-speed transmission is the equivalent of hooking up a trailer to your Honda Fit and hauling stuff down the highway. As far as the power goes, that's kind of a, a comparison. So. I wasn't super uh, bummed about letting that one go because it just was not it was not made for the power. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, let's leave it there. We got some good coverage kind of where you got your start. I think a lot of people that follow you will appreciate that. Yeah. I don't think you've ever, any of your, any of your, uh, your presence on social media, I don't think you've, you've had little tidbits in there, but I don't think anyone's ever heard that whole story. Hence, this podcast is a nice thing to do. Yeah, sit down and just unfold it. It's nice. All right. So again, if anyone has any questions for us, reach out. Uh, Steady the Wheel Podcast is an Instagram. Steady the Wheel Podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, let's know what you think. You bet. 